everyone. Welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. In this conversation I'm joined by Dr. Samina Mullah who is an associate professor of anthropology in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences at Marquette University. She is the author of the book The Violence of Care: Rape Victims, Forensic Nurses and Sexual Assault Intervention. Her work broadly theorizes the gendered regimes of sexual assault intervention that emerge among the state and sexual assault survivors in the contemporary united states in this conversation that's what we're going to be talking about also how forensic interventions can be improved if you have any feedback on this episode or the podcast in general please do get in touch all our contact details and social media handles are in the podcast description where you'll also find links to organizations that provide support to survivors of sexual violence Thank you so much for listening and please continue supporting us and sharing the podcast also giving us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts that helps us reach other people that's everything from me let's dive in hi samina welcome to talking research how are you doing today how's your weekend been too short thank you for inviting <laughs> me and uh thanks for having me on the podcast Thank you. Thank you for making the time. It's it's wonderful to have you and I'm so excited for this conversation. So to start, I wanted to ask you if you could introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced. Mm-hmm. Well, my name is Samina Mulla and I'm an anthropologist and I am speaking you, to you today from um Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that where we are in time and uh, place <laughs> is really important in terms of who we are. And I have been um doing field research on sexual assault intervention since 2004. That's that's amazing. And I wanted to ask you how you got into researching sexual violence specifically and you know broadly or research in general but this specific mm-hmm. topic in particular. Yeah, I think that is a question that uh, many of us who do this kind of work are are often asked and I'm happy to answer it, but I will also offer this uh response with the caveat that for those of us who study different forms of violence or gender-based violence, I think there's a lot of curiosity and perhaps some assumptions that there is a personal investment in these topics and I always find mm-hmm. it really curious how we don't you know necessarily ask philosophy professors who study you know the ancient greeks what their personal connections are mm. um but um my own work really began uh as a as an undergraduate student at the University of Maryland College Park and even back to my high school get days my school girl days just with um personal experiences of having many many people i know disclose to me mm. that they had been sexually assaulted and these stories bubbled up in very different ways and so initially 
I was really um, reading and researching in order to support people I cared about, uh, to understand what they had been through and how I might be in a position to support their their journeys to recovery. And I read a lot of self-help literature uh, originally and kind of found that there it was a bit formulaic. There seemed to be a mm. pattern to it. And and it was helpful, but people's stories were so singular in nature oftentimes that I I was a little I I found it a little bit haunting, uh, the way the self-help literature kind of standardized the narrative of, of what that kind of suffering looks like when people really had very different types of stories. And so that started to push me into thinking a little more analytically about sexual violence and why there seems to be this narrow band of discourse that we can use to talk about uh, sexual assault and, and sexual violence. And so I went off to graduate school at the New School of Social Research in the anthropology program. And um, two years is, is kind of too fast to do any deep field research. But I, I started with a historical question of, um, in the U.S. specifically, what sexual assault is or sexual violence is as a kind of category, who is it accessible to, who gets to narrate uh, themselves into experiences of, of rape and sexual assault, um, and who gets to avail themselves of, of these legal categories too. And so I began really thinking about the transition from um, into post-emancipation U.S. looking at histories of enslavement and um, mm. really thinking quite critically in the historical archive about when Black women were women before the law, right. not existentially, and uh, when the law and uh, the government recognized sexual violence against Black women as a violation of their personal rights, as opposed to a violation of the property rights of slave owners. And I mean, that's a very long and uh, kind of twisted answer, but it started me thinking about how uh, contemporary understandings and approaches to sexual assault and sexual violence might be haunted by these really particular genealogies in the United mm. States of um, how we come to mobilize sexual assault as a category. So for my doctoral work, I really felt a, a strong need to to imagine what field work and not archival work uh, would look like in mm. terms of this question. And I had become more interested in these political questions about what we offer people who uh, come forward as um, victims or sufferers of sexual violence. And so I became really, really interested in sexual assault intervention. And that is where uh, the research that I did that became my book, The Violence of Care, came from. I spent four years at that time in originally in the emergency room. For the last year, I, I didn't work in the emergency room. And I, I uh, was there both as a field researcher, but also as a, um, as a rape crisis advocate. I could not imagine a way to ethically insert myself into that space in a, you know, quote unquote, pure observer role. 
there was no other way for me to access that information that I was um, curious about. And I think one of the unique things about anthropology is that it doesn't require us to, um, you know, access a, a purely objective uh, positionality because it doesn't presume that that exists, right? I mean, if the paradigm that I'm working in is one that's social and cultural, uh, then I can never be outside of society or outside of culture. I'm always taking mm-hmm. it around with me. Uh, the other thing I'll say about why anthropology appealed to me um, is you know, reading through a lot of the literature in college, especially, you know, so much of it was uh, by psychologists, for example. So these kind of therapeutic paradigms. And then there was a lot of criminological research. And I write about this a little in the introduction of my book, but it really felt like there was this um, compartmentalization of these various aspects of Mm -hmm. sexual assaults, at least from a perspective of um, studying it so that you kind of had victims in one basket over there and then you had uh, the um, defendants or uh, Mm. the sort of like legal process somewhere over there and what do prosecutors do and what do defense attorneys do um, and what does recovery look like what is the forensic intervention and it was all really chopped up as if people don't exist in the same space as if um, a lot of this kind of violence isn't actually occurring within familial spaces or household spaces as it is, um, mm. as if people, as if uh, victims and the uh, people who assault them aren't part of the same family or the same community or the same world even. And so it really appealed to me to think about these questions as an anthropologist because I could focus in on a particular social milieu and kind of think about who all these different people were within that same space and what their relationships were to each other. That's that's so fascinating, you know, that answer. And I have so many follow-up questions, but I'm going to try to uh, keep to track because I have so much to ask you about your work. But uh, what you said at the end really stuck with me, this, this, you know, this idea that we have to accept that, you know, rape survivors don't exist in a vacuum. And, you know, we have to sort of look at what what societal conditions and what situations enable perpetrators and, you know, uh, what results in that crime taking place. And I, I think when I was reading your work, this, this, this really uh, stuck with me, this, this understanding that we have to kind of have more of a holistic perspective about you know about 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 seeing these different spheres together and not just in isolation so you know the the emergency room and the courtroom and thinking about how they interact and potentially influence each other so so I'm really keen to you know ask you about all of this and um I think to start I want to ask you what what is sexual assault forensic intervention you know uh if you can just walk us through that? I know that's quite a broad, open question, but if you could just tell us about that. Absolutely. Um, so the field work that I did uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, um, was uh, primarily in a sexual assault forensic examination program. 
that was located in an emergency room uh, of a hospital. And um, these types of programs, um, they live in lots of different types of um, spaces, depending on where mm -hmm. in the world you're looking at them. So in the U.S., they're often operating out of emergency departments, but sometimes uh, nonprofit women's centers or rape crisis centers will have a separate uh, program. And typically um, in the U.S., these are staffed by nurses. The same is true in Canada. Um, mm. Oftentimes in the U.K., um, the nurses will assist uh, with report writing and um, examination, but it's actually a uh, a physician who will carry out a, a kind of an examination when a, a victim comes forward and is referred for a forensic examination, which is essentially a, an evidentiary collection process. And mm. we have an assumption that uh, victims of violence are also requiring health care uh, at the same time. So the model um, asks the nurse or sometimes the physician, to both collect the evidence that the legal process or the legal investigation will require, while also administering um, some basic health care. Um, and that's, it's, it's slightly different depending on whether it's a doctor or a nurse who's administering um, the health care. The nurse does a head-to-toe assessment to make sure that uh, the patient is okay and then can also dispense medications like um, prophylaxis for preventing infections of mm. um, sexually transmitted diseases. In many uh, programs, the nurse can also offer prophylaxis to prevent pregnancy um, and follow up on any healthcare needs. Um, they'll do that based on standing orders in the United States. Um, most nurses aren't allowed to prescribe um, their own uh, medication. But um, so there is some physician oversight, even in the cases where the nurses are um, primarily doing all of these examinations. And what the examinations are, are these, you know, in the US, it's interesting, we like to talk about it as if it's unitary, but there's 50 states, so there's probably at least 50 different versions of what a, mm. a medical legal forensic examination looks like here, because it's essentially the state crime lab that determines what pieces of evidence they would like collected in these cases. So the forensic nurse will um, take lots of different samples in order to collect any potential um, DNA that's found on the body. And they will also check for um, injury and make uh, various forms of documentation about um, all of those injuries. And all of this gets recorded and packaged and collected in a really particular way. Um, and then this is handed off to a laboratory that will then mm. conduct the analysis. So the nurse isn't really part of the analysis. That's deliberately separated in um, the U.S. approach. To that examination. Right. I wanted to ask you, what, what is a standing order? Ah, a standing order. A standing order is uh, an order that's written by a physician that mm. allows a nurse to dispense medication without making a diagnosis herself. Because um, it's, it's a small technicality in the world of healthcare, but it's a very, very different one. Only physicians and sometimes nurse practitioners um, who are higher accredited uh, nursing experts are allowed to diagnose any particular issue. 
But a physician mm-hmm. can say, if these sets of characteristics are in place, then under this standing order, you may dispense this medication. Otherwise, a nurse cannot mm-hmm. prescribe a medication in the U.S. One of the tensions that you constantly see in this field of practice is that all of the really significant work and labor really is on the backs of the leadership of um, nurses um, who are doing mm-hmm. this really intense, important work. But there is continues to be this sort of power play in terms of uh, the tensions between physicians and nurses and how that plays out in um, a lot of clinical settings. And it's also very, very gendered because nursing is very woman-dominated field. Mm. Um, and so sometimes you run into dynamics where uh, fields that have more power, like physicians or doctors, um, have more masculine representation in there. So mm. just another layer of the of the puzzle of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what you said about how nurses can administer drugs to prevent a pregnancy, I'm I'm just wondering how that will interact with this sort of attack on reproductive freedom and um, abortions and birth control, potentially, you know, that we're, we're anticipating. I mean, I guess that's something to think about, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there is a... There, there have been many analyses of how, how these prescriptions uh, have been adopted as policy, uh, state by state, and it's very, very different. Um, mm. So, what's quite interesting, I think Rose Corrigan, the political scientist, was explaining to me that the states that have actually legislated at that state law level that you must offer. Um, prophylaxis for pregnancy um, prevention to victims of sexual violence um, really ran very technocratic campaigns. They were um, not really using the discourse of reproductive health rights. And so Mm -hmm. there you've seen a lot of legislative success. And so of course, we're all um, anticipating in the U.S. changes to the U.S. Supreme Court and the, you know, potential overturning of um, our federal uh, reproductive health laws. However, what what would happen, uh, you know, the day after, let's say, Roe versus Wade was to be overturned, is that what would states' laws would then prevail. So again, you'd have potentially 50 Mm. different iterations around um, emergency contraceptive access and abortion access, right? Mm. Um, And then you would also probably have at least 50 different immediate uh, legal actions challenging uh, the evacuation of Roe versus Wade, and we would move into a whole new period of of litigation. Wow, thank you for explaining that. That's just, it's it's like light bulbs been switched on. (laughs) We're talking today about your your book, The Violence of Care, and um, as you said, you know, your research in in uh, looking at sexual assault intervention in emergency rooms. And um, you've explained to us a little bit about how forensic evidence is, you know, uh, what happens with it, you know, and what's kind of the procedure there. But I wanted to ask you what can forensic evidence in sexual assault cases look like? What can it look like? 
You know, it's interesting because I think that uh, because of popular culture and popular expectations, I think all of us, you know, have been exposed to this idea that forensic evidence is like a, a magic bullet. And, you know, I have one chapter in the word, in the book that mm. um, has a, a nurse's quote uh, to me. She was saying DNA is like the hand of God. It's you know, pointing at at a person and saying it's you and what she means is that it, it's you know identifying um the defendant and so there's this real emphasis on um the material kind of uh forensic evidence right is it is it blood is it saliva right is it um hair pulls um it's you know all of which uh go on these small cards and um, you collect the clothing um, that the victim was wearing at the time um, of the assault. It, it is all of those things, but it is also very much um, the nurse's account of the examination, the, the words that she records on the paper, the questions that she poses. It's an interview, right? She poses a, question, a set of questions to her patient about their experience, and she records all of those things. And those words, right, that narrative is almost more important than all of these bits and pieces. Because, you know, in the United States, of course, what we know is that most sexual assaults take place between two people who know each other. It is yeah, not yeah. the case that we are needing to make, in, in, in the majority of cases, we, we're not needing to make a DNA identification of an unknown assailant. That is very rare. Um, and in those cases, you know, we should try to use DNA to make those uh, kinds of identifications. Those are a different threat uh, to public safety. But when we're talking about um, a dating scenario or um, a friend who crosses a line or, you know, again, in, in a lot of families, we'll have intergenerational violence um, and Nobody, nobody is unclear about who the assailant is in those settings. And so in those settings, um, you know, often what happens is all of this evidence is collected and the defense of the, of the perpetrator is, it was consensual. Mm. Yeah, my DNA is there because it was consensual. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that we invest so heavily in this idea that um, forensic evidence is, uh, is, is absolutely necessary. And a lot of times, you know, it's necessary in the sense that it, it carries a certain social weight that, um, you know, I'm going to cite Rose Corrigan again, that it, it's a kind of trial by ordeal, that we are expecting that this is a sacrifice that victims of violence make in order to show their dedication to this legal process. And so it can be very long. It can be very uncomfortable. And I, I write about some of that. It can be for very young women. It does involve a, a pelvic examination, right? A speculum examination. And many women have never been to the gynecologist before. And, and this is not a very welcoming way to have your first gynecological examination. Um, it can be quite jarring. It's really cold in that exam room, too, because um, a lot of the nurses I worked with kept the thermostat as low as possible in order to preserve all of this potential DNA evidence. They didn't want it to start rotting or putrefying. And so 
you know, sometimes I would say it's almost as if the evidence was the patient because it was the object of care. And then you have this shivering, exposed patient uh, who's trying to stay warm and trying to understand what's happening to her um, in the course of this examination. Yeah, it sounds like it's quite easy to be traumatized by this process. But that was very enlightening to listen to again. And in your book, you look at how the courtroom, so the legal trial process, it asserts itself into this initial medical intervention, you know, so these emergency room procedures and collection of forensic medical evidence, how the coming legal trial, how the subsequent legal trial about the sexual assault, it forces its way into this. And that was really interesting while reading your book. I hadn't thought of that at all before. So can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Um, I write about time a lot in uh, thinking about, um, you know, what I call the structure of anticipation. So what what future do you think is going to arrive? What are you expecting? What's around the corner? Um, And, you know, even if that thing never happens, which is often the case with the sexual assault trial, so very few... um, cases uh, in the criminal justice system uh, overall, not simply sexual assault cases, ever actually um, result in a trial. But Mm -hmm. at the point where you're in the hospital getting a forensic examination, everyone is acting as if this trial is the end point. Um, And so I call that the structure of anticipation. And I use the word structure because I, I want people to understand or um, to at least consider the notion that um, what we expect, what we anticipate, you know, absolutely has uh, kind of material consequences in the present. So that might mean, you know, for example, all those things that I just explained, that um, the patient's comfort might be secondary Mm -hmm. to um, the kind of needs for, of the nurse to be efficient and to put the, put the DNA evidence first, right? That mm. might mean that you are telling your story you know, to a, a forensic nurse examiner after having told it to the 911 operator, after having told it to the first police officer who showed up at the scene, maybe they called in a sensitive crimes detective afterwards. So it's your fourth go around telling the story, this traumatic story of what's happened to you, but this is what the the process requires of you. Um, and yeah. you know, you you reference trauma, right? Trauma has its own temporality um, as well. And I'm not convinced that trauma has a singular temporality, but oftentimes we think about trauma, and and certainly when we talk about um, post-traumatic stress disorder, this idea, again, of the the sort of like continual return of um, of the traumatic event, right? It's assertion into the present. And so when we think about having this patient who's also, you know, the victim of a crime, and forcing them to retell and retell and retell um, this particular story, it almost actually mimics um, that particular structure of trauma. We won't allow that event um, to kind of recede into the past. Um, One of the things I noticed frequently is a lot of times um, 
you know, and this is why I think it was really useful that I was the rape crisis advocate in this space as, a, as well as the anthropologist and the patients that I was supporting were aware of this. Um, mm. But I didn't have an interview uh, instrument or anything like that. My role was just to support the patient. Um, and then I would take my field notes once I had left the hospital um, and sort of try to recall in as much detail as possible what had happened. Um, and this was partly a, a research ethics, like a practical concern. I didn't want to create a ongoing record that might conflict with these medical or legal reports, right? So I left the hospital and then retroactively, my own notes would fall into a kind of legal hearsay. They're, they're not a, a direct uh, reflection. And that's interesting because there's a tension there because as researchers, you know, we don't want to discredit our own uh, accounts as researchers. Yeah. But again, this was really the only way I could think of to do it in any kind of an ethical sense. So that's even thinking about the court of law as the <laughs> anticipatory structure governing how I should take my field notes, right? Because I didn't want to be subpoenaed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I will say I have, I have never been subpoenaed. Uh, one time I was uh, contacted by a detective from the Baltimore um, Sensitive Crimes Unit. It was more than 10 years after the case had, had moved ahead, and I had no uh, memory of who this patient was, who I had supported. And so they were very uninterested in me as a potential witness as this case went forward, right? So in some ways, you know, thinking about how we imagine the court of, of law as the arrival point absolutely played out in my own research because it, it, it never really happened. And most of the nurses I worked with, right, the most involved they really were with these cases were at the point of this clinical intervention. Um, fewer than three of them had ever testified in a trial. This is out of over 20 nurses, some who had there was one nurse who'd worked almost 30 years in this field and had done had done fewer than five trials out of hundreds and hundreds of exams that she had conducted, you know, and all of these things really took me by surprise because I just assumed they're very resource intensive in terms of the time and expertise and how much um, you really require from both the patient and um, the provider in this setting. And so it just really underscored for me that the structure of anticipation, right, that we're going to go to trial was more real than actual trial. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that you and the others were called upon so rarely. So I thought of and, you know, read and heard about how the process of going to court can be re-traumatizing for victim survivors. But I hadn't thought of how the post-trauma care is compromised in anticipation of a trial that might not even happen you know and how that can lead to additional trauma um i hadn't thought of that until i read your work and i found what you said about this theorizing of time this temporality so philosophical and it's amazing that it stems from your on the ground research work you know just that marrying of the philosophical the theoretical the very very practical it's just so wonderful So you've spoken a bit about how this process fails victim survivors, but I was wondering if there was more you wanted to add to that, if you want to speak about that in a bit more detail. And I suppose these questions are quite interlinked as well. Yeah, I 
It's a really complex question. The word failure is a really heavy one, isn't it? And I would say that how we weigh failure, you know, really depends on which criteria we evoke to think about what a successful intervention is. So if the goal is prosecution and a sent, you know, um, guilty uh, plea or guilty conviction and then um, incarceration or other forms of punishment, then you can absolutely say, you know, not just based on my research, but um, based on many other um, analyses, some of which are uh, purely quantitative, that take a look at the inclusion of forensic evidence, not just in um, sexual assault cases, but in all violent crime that shows that it is non-predictive in terms of the outcomes of those trial processes. But, you know, you can also think about um, a different question, which is, you know, whether these patients, the victim survivors, get what they need from these interventions. And so it is absolutely possible that a victim survivor would want to have this forensic examination because it validates some kind of notion that she has of what it means to be taken seriously, right, as a victim survivor. I think for me, the failure is that there isn't really full consent or description or disclosure about what is the most likely thing that's going to happen. And I also think the process is very unfair for the nurses who are extremely capable and are practicing a kind of truncated version of their skills because there is so much emphasis placed on the, on, the, on the trial as the outcome that it doesn't allow them to kind of linger over the most important parts of their interactions um, with their patients, right? Um, and every the way we have this system set up in the United States is every you know victim is their patient, and they maybe you know you've only done twenty sexual assault interventions in one year's time, but as a nurse you've seen hundreds of patients in that same year, and it doesn't allow you to to dispense that same um, nursing care that you would have. In these other cases, right? It's what we call a limited practice in some cases. And so I've been in uh, professional spaces with nurses where, um, you know, forensic nursing leadership is trying to tell people, listen, what you do is really, really important. And it's important as a nurse. You know, you're, you're not just some crime scene uh, technician. Don't allow anyone to reduce your practice to that. And this point of contact that they have with the patients, that might be the longest, lengthiest, most meaningful point of contact um, along the entire way. So, you know, the, the case, there's really high attrition. We all know that these cases fall out of the criminal justice system, but the, the nursing care intervention could be the pathway to access to other therapeutic resources and other referral services and just basic needs. People, people mm. need very basic things when they come forward. Um, I write a lot about how, you know, we're, we, we also take this very narrow framework when we think about sexual violence, but 
some of the stories that patients were trying to tell in the emergency room were about housing instability um, and needing a, a safe place to be with themselves and their children, um, needing um, access to livelihood, wanting to work, right? Um, and these forms of um, economic vulnerability, you know, also not having a car or reliable public transportation forces women who are working um, out into the public space, uh, into the public spaces where they don't feel safe and, and can be exposed to a kind of predatory, opportunistic criminal um, behavior. So thinking about all these really basic infrastructural needs, I think there is a, a failure there when we, when we think about any kind of criminal justice response after the fact, it's simply not preventative at all. And then when we're talking about one that takes so many resources um, in terms of personnel, training, and uh, laboratory expertise, all of those things, sometimes I do think those resources could be allocated in very different ways if we were, if we were truly invested in, in preventing sexual violence. And in that sense, the notion that um, forensic intervention is a preventative, right, in the sense that it uh, contributes to successful prosecution, you know, is also, I, I would say, does set us up for some failure. If the goal is to prevent sexual assaults, uh, which I think it should be, then forensic intervention is not going to stop uh, future assaults. So I wanted to ask you, when you said forensic evidence is usually non-predictive in legal trials, if I'm quoting you correctly, what did you mean by non-predictive? Yeah, what I mean is when uh, criminologists uh, gather all of the the data um, and do a regression analyses to show is there a correlation between whether a case included forensic evidence and what the verdict of the trial is, the answer is there is no correlation. Um, mm. That uh, the inclusion of forensic evidence in a in a criminal justice investigation is as likely to lead to uh, a conviction as it is uh, to lead to a not guilty. Wow, thank you for explaining that. And you've highlighted so well how there's so much that's not adequate in the for forensic intervention process and that's potentially leading to this experience that really does not do justice and can even cause more pain and trauma to victim survivors. So as someone who's investigated this, what recommendations do you have for improving forensic intervention? Well, I would say that um, we have to think about ways to improve these processes simply because uh, as much as I would like to say we should just abandon these processes and shift all of our resources towards prevention, I think we have mm -hmm. to do both simultaneously. We have to understand that um, preventative uh tactics, um, which for me are very much about early childhood um, education and also about uh, overcoming the stigma of talking about sexual violence. It's as soon as people hear what I do my research on, it, and everyone becomes quite doer and, and serious. And, um, and I understand that, you know, these are hard things to talk about. Um, in the U.S., I would also kind of tie that to our puritanic culture. Around, I mean, we don't like to talk about healthy sexuality um, in any kind of uh, terms that are life-affirming or 
uh, open either. Mm-hmm. So when you start to talk about sexual violence or, you know, pathology, I think that suddenly it just feels very, very heavy, but it's such a common experience. There's so many people who have had this experience and, and that they have to navigate these experiences with silence and shame. I find completely antithetical to arriving at a location where we can say, let's, um, you know, let's, let's deal with the ground truth of um, who's carrying this shame and burden and let's think really creatively together about how we might overcome that. And we might overcome that by offering language and, and spaces where young children in, in age-appropriate ways can understand their own bodily autonomy and the bodily autonomy of others, right? Um, and that is also very politicized in the U.S. Uh, it's become a kind of uh, sex ed bad versus sex ed good kind of, I, I would say, false dichotomy. Um, and I do think that regardless of political persuasion, everyone falls into the sexual violence bad framework. So, so we need yeah. to step up those efforts And then at the same time with the forensic intervention, we need to allow nurses to do nursing. And that might mean um, that they don't feel as compelled uh, to insist on all of the steps of the criminal justice procedure. If that's something that violates their trust with their patient, that relationship between a nurse and her patient really has to come first. And there should also be a full disclosure to the patient about how important or not this forensic evidence collection might be. So if you are working with a patient who, who cannot identify the perpetrator who has attacked her, absolutely, right? There, it might be more appropriate to, to really explain what the potential of the DNA evidence is. But I've just seen so many cases, um, both here in Wisconsin and also in Maryland, where I, I did the research with the book, where, you know, after the exam, the patient just turns wide-eyed to the nurse and says, well, you know, can you prove it? Did you see injury, right? You'll be able to prove it, right? And it's so important to affirm that, you know, the, the person's narrative, their story, their experience is, is believable. When someone comes into a hospital and says, my stomach hurts, Nurses and doctors don't say, oh, really? Right? I mean, that's the complaint. Yeah. You record the complaint and you you work through it. Um, so I really think that the forensic intervention could be improved just by centering the nursing care that's happening um, and allowing the criminal justice procedures really to take, uh, to, to be subordinate to the, to the nursing care intervention. And by really thinking quite seriously about the patient's ongoing consent to participate in that mm. intervention, right? She might feel one way in hour one. By hour three, she might feel really differently. And so just continually checking in and saying, is this okay with you? Um, you know, yeah. Do you, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, not seeing justice and recovery as mutually exclusive. I guess not compromising that immediate post-assault care, you know, if not for recovery, but for the chance of maybe attaining justice in the future. But that was really insightful. Thank you and really great recommendations. And that makes me think that you've had so much experience looking at these processes really up close and, you know, being in that environment and seeing these cracks microscopically. And, you know, I wonder if you find this research 
emotionally draining and how you balance your emotional well-being with the kind of change that you want to bring about and you know this question makes me go back to what you said at the start that we don't ask some of these specific questions to people who research other disciplines and that's something that I hadn't thought of before and I've recorded 34 of these episodes so mm. that's something I'll go and think about but in the meanwhile I'm quite curious about how you balance your emotional well-being yeah um well so I want to answer that question I want to say one more thing because I think that I have for the course of this interview I've almost presented like all of the heaviness and kind of failure as something that's like endemic to criminal justice processes and if only the criminal justice procedure would just step out of the clinical space it would just get so much better but I think one thing that has been very very hard for me working in Baltimore and Wisconsin is that um, one also comes to be very aware of all of the uh, violence that's also endemic to clinical intervention and this is where the the race piece, I think, which is very, very unique to the United States setting, where criminal justice interventions disproportionately take place within communities of color. And it, it's, it's troubling and also fascinating in the sense that sexual violence is not something in the U.S. that's racially stratified, meaning there is as much sexual violence in every racial community. But there is in because we have such a high correlation of, of race and class intersections, right? So we find Black, Latino, Native American communities are far less well represented in these upper class um, uh, categories. And in, in the upper class, people deal with these issues. Like if there's sexual violence in a family, if there's uh, child abuse, people deal with it privately people quietly get divorced. People quietly get their own um, psychologist or therapist and, uh, and manage it in that way. Because these communities are not already surveilled and criminalized and in police contact all the time, we don't see as many of those cases in urban courtrooms. And the other piece of it is medicine and nursing in the United States also excludes a lot of practitioners of color. There just haven't been avenues in there. So a lot of what I observed frequently would be all white staff really working with majority black women, patients. Not all, but majority in Baltimore. And the potential for misunderstanding or for outright racial animus sometimes was just really was really painful to observe. I, I didn't expect to see that. And I think that kind of mirrored the patients didn't expect to be treated poorly by a nurse. Uh, that was just, it's not what you imagine um, is, is happening. And I want to be really clear that this isn't based on people's individual intentions. Like the nurses didn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to I'm going to make a, a, a sexual assault victim survivor's experience harder. That's my, you know, no one walks into mm -hmm. the clinical interaction with that intention. But actually, a lot of these ideas about compliant patients and who follows advice and listens to doctors and, and, and is a model patient, right, those come from nursing care practice and from the practice of medicine. Those are 
those racial disparities come from the from the therapeutic side, from the clinical side. They're not introduced by the criminal justice. But when the two things intersect, you get something that's really potent and powerful. And I found that really personally painful. And in that sense, all I can do is reveal it and write about it. So, you know, I take that pain as not something to run away from. But for example, I'm I've just completed my second project, which is based in the courtrooms, looking at, well, what do they do with all this stuff at the trial? And really focusing in very deeply um, on race and racial hierarchies in the U.S. and how medicine is so entangled in those authoritative structures. That first project, I was, you know, the rape crisis advocate, and I think that felt empowering because I didn't feel like I was just a kind of predatory uh, pair of eyes. I was there with a purpose, and my purpose was to support um, this patient. Um, and I think I was effective, and I had the support of um, the other rape crisis advocates and uh, uh, the director of the program at the local nonprofit that I was working with. And that community was very, very important. Um, and there was training. Uh, that went into being able to be in that space. And sometimes you cry and you cry because it's sad. And I always told myself that the day that I felt nothing was the day to be done with the work because I don't want to become numb to the suffering of others. And I've also, um, you know, for this new project in the courts, um, it was really complicated uh, I found a partner, um, and so we did collaborative ethnography, and we would be there together, and then we would take students with us as well who are research assistants, and we would just debrief constantly, and that project felt really different in the sense that I don't think I brought as much home with me. I did bring some things home, but I've also learned to think of emotion not simply as you know this thing on the side. I think that intuition is so important as a researcher. And I, I work in the U.S. as somebody who's really committed to working in the U.S. because I think anthropology has this reputation of focusing on the cultural other. And so that's not my politics. Like my politics are really about bringing anthropology home. And so I, I read as broadly as I can. And I'm, I've been thinking and working through for quite some time um, this sort of pushback against the notion that knowing is not feeling which I've come to through a scholar named David Smith, who's talked a lot about um, Athabascan people um, in uh, sort of indigenous communities in the, in the north uh, of the North American continent and how they rely on a form of knowing that is completely embedded in feeling. And so if something really gets to me, I sit on it. <laughs> I, I give myself time and space to, to maybe heal from it or step away from it. Um, but then I return to it and I say, well, why is this something that I found so upsetting? And do I need to do some more work here, right? Like, does this need to drive my analysis more? Um, so I think all those things are really important, building community and not just um, sitting alone. And, and I have a very large community um, across the, the globe, I would say, of sexual assault researchers who talk and think about these things, but also just as part of my feminist practice, thinking that emotions are a productive way of understanding uh, a particular subject and not something that I should be trying to 
erase or abolish. Wow, that was so wonderful to listen to and I'm so glad you said these things because they're so needed and you know what you said about knowing about this narrative that oh facts don't care about your feelings or knowing is not feeling it's actually something that we need to get rid of and really think about what our feelings are telling us and you know in any given situation be more mindful of that process of that knowledge and i actually thought about this recently how we think of intelligence and how we talk about oh this person is so intelligent and you know we make a separation between intelligence and sensitivity and i personally think that sensitivity is a sign of deep intelligence that you're able to pick up on cues that are so important and subtle in our everyday interactions but that's something that's considered hmm. more feminine you know when we raise our girls the word sensitivity is thrown around a lot but how undervalued that quality actually is you know how it's not considered a form of intelligence how it's considered different from typical intelligence yeah i've just been thinking about how that's gendered as well and i have deep respect for people who are more sensitive and what you said made me think of that so i'm really glad you said that but last thing i wanted to ask you is what is one practical advice that you have for everyone listening that they can all do in their everyday lives to tackle sexual violence to support survivors better and better and they don't all have to be researching sexual violence or being on the front lines of supporting survivors just one practical thing that we can all do i think one practical thing is that um if someone comes to you and tells you their story just don't doubt them just believe them and if you don't know what to say you can just say i'm so sorry that happened to you and i'm so glad you shared that with me what do you need from me all of the research tells us that you know it's not 911 it's not the doctor it's friends and family that survivors go to and just being prepared to receive that revelation and being honest that you don't know what to do and following the lead of somebody even if their story doesn't sound like what you would expect a story of sexual assault to sound like i think you can train yourself just to be open to those stories absolutely that's such an important piece of advice and there's a link to samina's book in the episode description please do check it out and that brings us to the end of this episode thank you so much samina for coming on this podcast and for all your incredible work <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much for the invitation asmita and uh, for having me um, on the podcast i appreciate it mm-hmm.